Welcome to our first week uh, in our brand new series that we're calling How to Beat the Odds. And we especially want to uh, welcome all those joining us on our online campus and also in our Poughkeepsie campus as well. Thank you for uh, tuning in. And we're excited about this series because uh, I, I just believe that, that relationships are so important to God. And we want you in the Valley family to experience the best possible relationships that you can. And so that's what this whole series is going to be about as we work our way through it. And we're starting off by talking about uh, marriage specifically this week and next week. But I think there'll be something for everyone, uh, whether you're married or single or uh, widow, uh, whatever your, your station in life currently uh, is at this time. And aren't those uh, statistics really amazing there that we saw in the bumper? Uh, and, and the big idea uh, that I really want to share with you in this whole series is this. The odds are against us, but God is for us. The odds may be against us, but with God, with Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, God is for us, and he always beats the odds. It doesn't matter what those statistics are. You don't have to be a statistic. Your marriage doesn't have to be a statistic. Your parenting doesn't have to be a statistic. Your friendship doesn't have to be a statistic. The odds are against us, but God is for us. So if you have your Valley Christian Church app, go ahead and open that up. I think you're going to want to follow along. Look back on these notes, uh, and, and I think they're really going to help you in the future as well as be real practical for us today. Uh, but here's that big idea. The odds are against us, but God is for us. And, and again, what we heard, three out of ten men prioritize their marriage in America today. Gulp, 30%. I think it's, it's like even a priority Fifty uh, percent. Uh, most of us heard this one as well. Fifty percent of new marriages will end in divorce in a window of twenty years. In a window of the first twenty years, half marriages fail in America today. And, and I heard this one that's pretty interesting. Uh, that wasn't in our bumper, but forty percent of adults in America today don't believe marriage is important and don't believe that marriage works. Forty percent of the adult population, marriage is not important anymore. I think largely because of the statistics. And, and, and quite honestly, I think without Jesus Christ, I think it's possible that you could have a good marriage. I think it's impossible that you have a great marriage. I think it's completely impossible to have a great marriage apart from Jesus Christ. And, and that's why we can beat the odds. And where do you get an idea like that? The odds are against us, but God is for us. Well, Romans 8.31, I would say, would be kind of the key verse for this whole entire series. And this is what it says. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And for the sake of our series, in response to these statistics. Well, what are we going to say as followers of Jesus Christ in response to these really heartbreaking statistics? Here's what we say. If God's for us, who can be against us? If God's for us, it doesn't matter what the statistics actually are. God always tips the scale in our favor when we put him first. God always tips the scale in our favor when we put him first. God loves marriage because it was his idea. He invented it and he knows how to make it work strongly and powerfully. The problem with our culture today is, and we're going to find not real new, all cultures, even 2,000 years ago, they've gotten underneath the hood and messed with the mechanics of what marriage is supposed to be. And, and, and so many of us actually enter marriage, we don't really know what marriage is about. What's the purpose of marriage? What makes marriage powerful? And that's what we're going to be talking about, specifically about marriage, this week and next week as well. I, hope, I want to invite you back next week. Uh, I'm calling in a ringer to help me out. Uh, my wife of almost 27 years, Susie Warner Williamson, uh, is going to be joining me. And we're going to be sharing that message together. And, and I just want to say, men, you may not have heard, you may not have ever heard my wife before. Uh, you're in for a real, real treat. And we're just going to be open and honest and share with you from our marriage because we don't have a good marriage. We have a great marriage. We really do. It's not perfect, but we have a great marriage. And we're going to be sharing real openly and honestly about our struggles, some things we've had to face, some things we're still facing. And that's the thing about marriage. You never arrive. You never completely arrive. It's work. It's hard work day in and day out. That's why that statistic, only three out of ten men even think it's a priority, married men. Just, just really, really shocking. But God loves 
marriage. He created it. He knows how it works best. So that's why we can find real practical guidelines and advice and input in God's word that are really, really going to help. And so when it comes to marriage, real practically, uh, what we need to do, many of us, we need to alter the atmosphere. And that's what I'm calling this message, alter the atmosphere. Because we're creating in our homes, those of us who are married, you're creating an atmosphere, an environment. And sometimes, let's be honest, it's terrible. It's toxic. The fumes, or you wake up in the morning, you can smell the fumes in the house. There's all these undercurrents and all these problems and all these emotions and everything. And, and God wants you and I to alter the atmosphere. And, and, and words are things that can really change the atmosphere in a marriage, in a, in a family, in a household. Uh, let me share with you a few key words that just can really alter the atmosphere and, and help you out here. Uh, and, and I'll do this from the perspective of, of, of a wife and a husband, okay? Uh, here's one word that will alter the atmosphere. Ready for it? Nothing. Nothing. When you ask your wife, men that are married, when you ask your wife, what do you, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? When she says nothing, the opposite is really the reality. Be, be, be warned, man. When, when you ask your wife, hey, honey, what are you thinking about? And she goes, nothing. Sit down, pour a cup of coffee, get real comfortable, because this is about to be a really long conversation. When a woman says nothing, there's a lot that's on her mind. She, she, it's so much so she hasn't even sorted it out yet. Uh, a, a wife wants that at time, and, and she, she wants to process that. And most of the time, wants to process, it, process that with you, hubby. What's on your mind, honey? Nothing. Now, the reverse. What's the opposite for men? Ladies, let me talk to you for a minute. When you ask a man, hey, baby, what's on your mind? He says, nothing. That's exactly what he means. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there. And, and, and I was even talking with my wife about this. As men, and, and I think women have a hard time understanding, we can go hours without anything on our mind. Just nothing. There's, there's, not a, there's not a single thought of consequence for hours. And you know what? That's why men hunt. That, that's, that's why men watch football. Because it's just like, and it, it's like almost like how we recharge. Because there's other times when there's so much on our mind, we need times when there's nothing. So, ladies, when your husband says there's nothing on his mind, say, thank God, and just keep going. Men, when your wife says nothing, sit down, it's time to talk. Here's another, just, just words that can change uh, the atmosphere, alter the atmosphere. Again, from the perspective of a wife and then a husband. How about this phrase? I was thinking... I was thinking, or, or let me just change this for the different genders. Generally, this phrase is what men say. Men say, I was thinking. Women say, I feel. You just listen to conversation, listen to other people's conversations. I have three daughters. They never say, I was thinking. It's always, a, I feel. I feel, I feel. And, and, and husbands, when your wife says, I feel, Again, that's like alarms going off, red lights spinning around. Stop what you're doing. This is really important. I, I, I feel. When men say, I was thinking, ladies, get ready. Wives, get ready because there's something, and, and he wants to sell your house and, and, and move into a trailer, uh, a Winnebago, and go cross-country for the next 40 years. It's, it's something. But I was thinking, boom, it's, it's a big, huge, like, I, I, listen. Uh, honey, Susie, there's something I've been thinking about. She's like, oh, no. Oh, no. What is it now? I was thinking or I was feeling. Uh, how about this one? Here's another just phrase, just alters the atmosphere. Everything's going really, really great. And then husband or wife utters this phrase. Do you remember dot, dot, dot? Now, to husbands, this is sheer terror. Because you realize this is an exam that's being given. Pass or fail, one question. Do you remember the time and you're like, oh, God, please, please increase my memory right now. I can't even remember what I had for lunch. But if I don't answer this question right, I am in the doghouse for the next month and a half. Do you remember when so absolutely critical, just change the atmosphere. 
As men, when we say, do you remember, generally, do you remember where I put my shoes? You know, do you remember where, where, where my socks are? Do you remember where my glasses are or my phone? But, but very, very different. This is a terrifying statement to most husbands. Do you remember <gasps> absolute terror? Or how about this phrase? It, it, it means something, but it doesn't mean what it actually means. These are, these are messages or, or phrases that actually alter the atmosphere. Five minutes. Honey, how long do you think it'll be? To, you know, we're, you ready to go? Just give me five minutes. It never means five minutes. That means an approximation and stop asking me. I'll be ready when I'm ready. Five minutes doesn't mean literally one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, five minutes. It, it means don't ask me again. When I come downstairs, I'm ready. That's what, that's what it means when wives say this. When men say this, also understand it doesn't mean five minutes. You know, honey, I need you to come into the house and help me. I'm working in the garage. I'll be there in five minutes. It ain't going to be five minutes. It's going to be like 45 minutes or an hour and a half. So, so five minutes means don't ask me again. I'm going to be there when I get there. Five minutes. Or how about this? Put these things together for just a minute. Listen, can you give me five? I need to talk to you for just five minutes. Because I was thinking about something, and do you remember when? You're, you're, man, forget it. It's all over, but they're shouting, the rest of the night's shot. That's all that's going to happen the rest of the time. I say, what do you think about this? Nothing. I, I mean, this is just, these are altering the atmosphere conversations here. I, I want to look at our time together, just, just kind of setting the stage for how different Husbands and wives really are. Men and women really are. I, I want to look at it probably like the key passage. And even when I, when I mention this, I, I know if you've spent any time in church before, you're going to be like, <gasps> I want to look at Ephesians 5. And, and, and we're going to kind of unpack it during our time together today. Uh, but also we're going to go back to it next week. Uh, when, when Susie's on stage with me as well, we do the message together. We're going to go a little bit deeper because it's so important to marriage. It, it's so primary. It, it's so potent as well when it comes to marriage. And at the same time, so confused. So absolute. There's so much confusion about this. There, there's been, it's, it's been so misinterpreted through the years. And so before we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to read a pretty lengthy passage there in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, let, let me just set up the background. Because I was doing a little study on this, and it's pretty amazing what I found out. And it kind of changes completely as you read through the passage that we're going to read through together. Uh, in Ephesus, 2,000 years ago, and you could go there actually today, the, the remains of Ephesus. Uh, it, it was very interesting. It was a very uh, uh, culturally savvy uh, city, very well developed. It, it, it was a lot of trade that went through Ephesus. Paul writes to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. In particular, the main hub, the main spot, like downtown, if you will, Main Street, Ephesus, on one side of Main Street was this huge, colossal library. Incredible library. It was known for all its volumes of, of information that it had in this library. On the other side of the street, Main Street, was a huge brothel, house of prostitution. And they've actually uncovered that there's a tunnel in the back of the library that goes underneath the street into the brothel. And the men knew about this, and the women knew about this as well. And so the men in Ephesus would say, honey, I just really feel like I need to go to the library They'd go to the library and they'd come back hours later. They'd enter in the library doors, go through the tunnel, meet up with their mistresses, go back through the tunnel and walk out the doors of the library hours later. Come home and the wife would say, well, how was the library? And he'd say, it was great. That's the culture that the book of Ephesians is written to. In other words, everybody knew what was going on. Husband and wife relationship, a wife was your manager of your household, and she was there to breed children. That was the mindset 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. In terms of enjoyment and sexual satisfaction and pleasure, men went to the prostitutes, to the library, to study. This was commonly understood in the culture. 
And so in other words, the words that we're going to read in Ephesians were even more countercultural 2,000 years ago than they were today, than they are today. And so we think like, man, this is just all new stuff. No, we're not even to that level of total off-the-chain depravity. That's what was happening in the church of Ephesus. And it's into that situation that, that men and women are receiving Christ as their Savior. Families are being transformed. Children are putting their trust in Jesus as well. And, and Paul contrasts, and you can read this in the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 5. He contrasts all these things that used to be for Christians. He says, but now, therefore... And he goes into, this is what it looks like now as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he goes into three areas or spheres of relationship. First of all, he's going to talk about now because you're a Christian, husband and wife relationship. Now because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, parent-child relationship. This is how it's supposed to look. Now because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, employer-to-employee relationship. He says master-to-slave. Slave didn't necessarily in that context mean what we think of as slave. There was this thing called indentured servants, bond servants, which actually was a voluntary thing. And that's what Paul is speaking to. Don't have time to develop all that right now. But, but he says these three different relational spheres, this is his followers of Jesus Christ. This is what your life's supposed to look like. And that's where we're picking it up in Ephesians chapter 5, contrasting the life of a believer before and after receiving Jesus Christ. So what that means to you and me is this. If, if you're here today or you're watching online and you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what your life's supposed to look like. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior at this time, you're off the hook. None of this applies to you. And so let, let's read what it says, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, what's the therefore? I heard someone say one time, whenever you read therefore in the Bible, find out what it's there for. And so it means because of all the stuff previous to this, and you can read that on your own before in Ephesians 5, 1 through 16, and it talks about all the, what it used to look like before you received Christ. And now he's saying, therefore, because you have... Therefore, do not be foolish. Remember the context, the library and the brothel. Remember this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand what it looks like to live as a Christian in a culture that's gone off the rails in terms of morality. It goes on and says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to contrast here. He's like... uh, Ephesian Christians shouldn't have been getting drunk anyway. But he's going to draw a contrast here, you know, between someone who's drunk with wine instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love this. You know why? Here's the thing. When someone's drunk, they don't have to tell you you're drunk. They're drunk. You can tell they're drunk. You know, I, I think we all, I remember going to my 10-year high school reunion, and I went there to see my friends and all, and there was some serious drinking going on. I wasn't doing it all. And, and there's always a person like, oh, my gosh, I am so drunk. Listen, if you're drunk, you don't have to tell people. They can tell. This is what Paul's saying. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't have to say praise God at the end of every sentence. You don't have to say hallelujah. You, you, you don't have to do all these outward things. People will know by the peace and the genuine love in your life that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Stop talking the talk. Start walking the walk. That's what Paul says. You don't have to tell someone you're drunk. You don't have to tell someone you're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're like, what's so different about you? What's so different about your life? It's not the, the vocabulary that you use or you don't use. It's about the quality of your life. He says, instead be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on and says, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Listen, so important. We're going to get on this. We create the environment we live in. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about being some kind of weirdo, wacko spiritual person. He's talking about create a spiritual environment where you are. A, a, a life-giving atmosphere. And you know where it begins for the sake of our time together? In your home. I've seen way too many Christians that just put that fake smile like everything's great and hell is breaking loose in their home. And Paul says, it's not supposed to be that way. Stop pretending. Don't be pretentious. Isn't that the knock against Christians in our world today? And too many of us play into it. We're a bunch of hypocrites. It's never supposed to have been that way. It's not supposed to be that way. Now we're supposed to be genuine and authentic. And he says, you create that environment. 
He goes on and he says, always giving thanks to God, the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God for every grateful, humble heart is the mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Gratitude and humility. He goes on and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is where he says, submit to one another. What does that word submit mean? Let me just unpack it for a minute because there's all kinds of just messed up ideas about this. The best way I can explain submission is this. Your heart is open to that other person. That's what submission is. My heart is open to my wife because I love her for her input, for her advice. My heart is open. And notice what it says before anything else, before he goes into husband-wife relationship, before he goes into parent-child relationship, before he goes into employer-employee relationship, he says what? Submit to one another. Let me ask you a question. Who are you submitted to? It's a hallmark of the Christian life that my heart is open and, and I seek out input in my life. He's going to say it husband to wife. He's going to say it parent to child. He's going to say it employer to employee. That I seek out my heart is open. Submit to one another. That means husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Parents, children, employer, employee, and he describes how that's going to look in detail now by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now he begins, but remember, it says submit to one another. That's first and foremost. Mutual submission is the foundation that marriage is built on. Mutual submission. Our culture says marriage is built on, generally the relationship is male dominate, female manipulate. Husband dominate, wife manipulate. And see who's going to be the boss. God says that's not marriage. That, that, that's the world system, the world mindset, and that will make you a statistic. This is what saves marriages. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now look, it explains it. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as unto the Lord. Wives, when your husband's going to the library, ooh, that's literally what he's talking into. Wives, when your husband is going to the library, don't close your heart to him. Keep your heart open to him. That's the context of this passage. Don't cut him off. Keep your heart open to him. Why? Not because he's perfect. You do it what? As unto the Lord, because of Jesus. Jesus is the model of submission. That Jesus, even when he faced a brutal death, opened his heart up, knowing the pain he was going to suffer, opened his heart up to the Father and said, not my will, yours be done. That's the example. It's not, that's going to hurt, this is painful, this is going to be a heartache. The example is Jesus to our Heavenly Father. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. It goes on and it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, and watch this, as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. What does that mean, husbands? What did Jesus, how, did Jesus, how was Jesus the head? He laid his life down. He laid his dreams down. He sacrificed himself for the church. Now you've got mutual submission. Now you, you find a husband who's like, how can I make your life Make your dreams come true. You're not here, honey, to make my dreams come true. You're not here to build me. I'm here to lay my life down to see that you flourish. That's Jesus. Not domination, not the boss, not my way or the highway. I'm the man of the house. When did Jesus ever talk like that? That's worldly mindset. Jesus laid his life down, knowing what he was going to suffer, knowing what the pain was going to be, knowing what the cost was going to be. He did it for love of the church. I, I, I've said this before. The main reason why I'm here in New York today is that woman right there in the front row. Because this was not what I wanted. 
I wanted to be on the first train headed to Georgia. But her dream was to have stability and live in one place for a long time of stability. And I've laid my life down to make her dream come true. It's not my dream. Where'd you get an idea like that from, Greg? Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He sacrificed himself for the church, for the well-being and the health of the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Just like that. That's how it's supposed to look. Sacrificial, unconditional love from the husband to the wife. His body, of which he is the Savior. It goes on and it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I listen, let me just be frank here. I've never once seen a woman, a wife in my life, that refuses to open her heart to her husband, that sees her husband opening his heart to her and laying his life down. I've never once seen it. I've seen women that try to manipulate because the husband's trying to dominate because he's not acting like Jesus, he's acting like the devil. I've seen that all the time. But I have never once seen a man who's truly laying his life down for his wife, as Christ did for the church, I've never seen a woman say, I don't want that. It, it, it opens her heart up as well. That's what the scripture's talking about here. The husband is the key. How is he laying his life down, sacrificing himself for his wife? See, Susie and I do have a great marriage. It's not perfect, but it's a great marriage. Do you know why it's a great marriage? Because every day I die. It kills me every day. And, and, and it kills her every day to have a great marriage. It, it, it's submitting, our, dying to ourselves and putting the other person first. That's the key, that mutual submission. It goes on and it says, husbands, now isn't this interesting? Remember Ephesians, the men are going to the library, going underneath the tunnel to the brothel. This is a radical, revolutionary thought. Husbands, love your wives. What? Love my wife? No, she's just a manager of my household. She's just, she's just the one that, that gives me kids. No. Love your wife, and then he says this, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For her. It pains me. It really does when I see a woman, a wife who's browbeaten, cowering, timid, shriveled up and dried up in her soul. That's a husband's fault. Doesn't matter what kind of bumper sticker he has on the back of his car. That's a husband's fault. My job as a follower of Jesus Christ, number one, put Jesus in the center of my life. Number two, Lay my life down so that my wife flourishes. I've noticed lately. We're going to the airport or something, and we're walking along in the airport, Susie and I, and, and I get these double takes now all the time. These double takes, like they look at me and they look at her, flourishing and radiant, and they look at me and they're like, that guy must have money or something. Don't know how he ended up with her. But, but listen, when my wife flourishes, that, that's a reflection of who I am as a man. If I'm all about me and I got all the nicest new of everything and she's in the same rags that she's been in for the last five years, that shows I'm not living as Jesus Christ. He put the church above his own needs. He put the church above his own needs for security, for safety, for comfort, for prestige. The church, the church, the church. That's the role of a husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. And listen, I know right now, even as I'm saying this, some of you are like, that isn't even close to my marriage. Your marriage is in danger. Your marriage is in danger. You're, you're, you're in danger of being a statistic. If we don't recognize God said, this is the way marriage works. This is the way it's supposed to work best. This is the way he created it. He goes on and he says, to make her holy. Here it is. Here's the radiant bride. Here, here's what God's after, husbands, for our wives. 
to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, being a spiritual leader who lays his life down for his wife. And if God blesses the children, for the children as well. That, that, that the greatest reflection of who Greg Williamson is as a man will be my wife and my children. It doesn't matter how well I preach. It doesn't matter any of those things. If, if I am not leading and laying my life down for her and for my kids, I don't have a right to say a word in front of God's people. Not a right. First Timothy makes that very, very clear. Not perfection, but, but reflection. Not perfection, but a reflection of Jesus Christ. That's what gives the right to speak. Makes her holy and cleansing by the washing of the water through the word. It goes on and says, and to present her, my role is to present my wife one day to God as a husband. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's job number one for a husband. And so this whole idea, wives submit to your husband, that's the easiest part. In many ways, that's the easiest part. Husbands, we're just called to die, to lay it all on the line for the woman that God has given to us and to put her first. And, and, and next week, she's going to be sharing some of those, of how that practically, the outworking of that in our own marriage. It goes on and it says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now you're really messing with us. This isn't just some philosophical concept. Now it's like, take care of her as much as you would your own body, your own flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he who mistreats her, shuns her, abuses her, doesn't even know what salvation is all about. Goes on and says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. That's your job, husband. Feed and care for your wife. Just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. He goes on and it says, now Paul quotes from Genesis. Brings it right into the New Testament. For this reason, what reason? A man to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Now he applies it, this, this verse that's quoted over and over all throughout the Bible. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Then he goes on and he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Jesus left his home to be joined to the church. And he laid his life down for his bride, the church. And as followers of Christ, men, husbands, we're supposed to be a reflection of that same determination, that same love, and that same unconditional commitment. Not, not going to the library and sneaking through the tunnel. That's the whole backdrop of this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. And he goes on and he says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And he just throws that in there. It's like, by the way, I know it's hard when they come home from the library. They ought not be doing it. It's sin. Don't close your heart off to him, though, because God's working in his life as well. Open your heart. Respect your husband. Allow God to change him. Now, now, none of this is to say that, that a woman, and don't, don't mishear me at all, a woman should ever stay in an abusive, physically abusive relationship. That, that's, that's not what the Bible is saying at all. But the fact about the matter is I, I've just seen too many marriages that have exploded and erupted and has nothing to do with physical abuse whatsoever. It has to do with husband shut his heart to his wife, wife shut her heart off to her husband. And it's exactly why the statistics are what they are. And that's why it says respect. That, that's respect. When a man feels respected, when a husband feels respected, you know what happens? His heart opens. His heart opens. He submits. So, so very, very important. And so 
What is this saying? Is this contrasting? Paul is connecting the husband-wife relationship with Christ and the church. As I said, there's no bossing on the husband's part. There's no cracking the whip, making someone do something against their will. When did Jesus do that to you? He didn't. That, that's not what it means to be a, a Christian husband. There's no ultimatums. There's no demands. There's no orders. That's the way that the world functions. Uh, male, as a husband, I'm going to dominate, and then she's going to try to manipulate. That's not a Christian marriage. So far from it. Let me put it this way. The mission of marriage is not to make us happy. If you got married because you thought the mission of, of, of marriage was to make us happy, guess what? It's not going to happen. The mission of marriage is to show the world that the gospel works. The mission of marriage is to show those that don't know Christ a tangible reflection of unconditional love, of mercy, of acceptance, of grace, of empowerment. That's the purpose of marriage, not happiness. And, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you got married recently and you're still like on your honeymoon, but let me just tell you, change is going to come. Change is going to come. I heard a Christian comedian talking about that change is going to come. Maybe right now in this moment, you're just experiencing marital bliss, but let me tell you something, change is going to come. Change is going to come. Because marriage is work. And just when you think you get it all figured out as a newlywed couple, and you're like, all right, we got this. We, we, we weathered the storms. All right, we got this. Guess what happened? Change going to come. Kids going to come. And everything gets turned upside down. And just as soon as one, like, all right, we got this down. Here comes number two. And then here comes number three. And then before you know it, they're gone. And then it's just the emptiness. And guess what? Change going to come. I am not the man that my wife married almost 27 years ago. And she's not the woman that I married almost 27 years ago. She has changed dramatically. I have changed dramatically. Unconditional love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, the gospel. That's what makes marriage what God created it to be. The mission of marriage is not happiness. The mission of marriage is to show the world that the gospel truly works so let, let me give you this real quick in the time remaining some power principles to prepare us for marriage so some power principles if you're married so in other words power principles for marriage if you're single these are some power principles that will prepare you for marriage and so you can prepare right now by just implementing some of these things in your relationship it's amazing how it will benefit you in your friendships in your relationships right now Power principles for marriage or power principles if we're single to prepare us for marriage. Uh, we, we need to allow God to change us. That's what I mean. Like, I die every day for my marriage. Susie dies every day for our marriage. And, and that's when the change comes. That's when resurrection power, listen now, resurrection power only happens after death. You never experience, I never experience, I never will, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ until I die. He had to die before he was resurrected. Death releases resurrection power in our relationships when we die to ourselves just like he did. So here are our principles here, change. How about we change from selfishness to submission? From selfishness to submission. That it's not about my dreams, my hopes, my five-year plan coming true for my family and marriage. Instead, I want her dreams to come true. Instead, I want her to be radiant. I want her to, to, to be beautiful and, and, and fabulous and fantastic and flourishing. From selfishness to submission. As I said before, and I can't hammer this hard enough. My role in following Christ's example is to make sure that my bride is thriving. That's my job as a Christian husband, that she thrives because that's what Jesus did. 
from selfishness to submission. Jesus submitted himself to all the pain and hardship for the sake and the welfare of the church, his bride. So we need to change from selfishness to submission. Our heart would be open. And I know for some of us, we've been hurt so bad that it's going to take God's grace. That's why you got to have Jesus in the middle of it. That our heart would be open to our spouse. Here's the second thing. From lashing out to listening. Really listening. Actively listening. In other words, when our spouse is saying something to us, instead of, well, this is what I'm going to say as soon as you breathe and stop talking. As soon as you take a breath, this is what I'm going to say. Lean in and listen. Try to understand. Instead of jumping to the conclusion, I know what you meant by what you said. No, I, I know what you meant. Listen. Lean in and listen. Instead of lashing out. Change from pursuing happiness, listen, to pursuing holiness. Do you know why people are unhappy in our world today? Because they're unholy. There is no greater feeling. There's no greater joy than knowing I'm doing what God wants me to and I'm pleasing him. When we pursue happiness, we pursue depression and disappointment. When, when, When a man or a woman enters into marriage for that person to make me happy, guess what? No one can do that apart from Jesus Christ. No one can bear the weight of it. And your spouse will crumble under that pressure that you put them on as you put them on that pedestal that only Jesus should sit on. From pursuing happiness to pursuing holiness. What does God want me? What does he expect from me? That's what he expects from me as a husband. Ephesians chapter 5. That's what he expects of me as a wife. As you read through Ephesians chapter 5. Yes. And it's amazing the joy that comes from knowing I'm doing what God wants me to do. How about this? Change from forgiveness, from fighting to forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Listen, there are times as a spouse, you're going to be called upon. You've got to pray that prayer. Father, forgive. They don't know what they're doing. But remember what Jesus was going through when he prayed that. None of us are ever going to face that. But he's our example. Whipped, beaten, beard pulled out, crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Change from fighting to forgiveness. And here's the last one. Change from me to mission. Change from my marriage is about me to mission. I, I, I've heard people say this before, and I, I understand what they mean, but, but, but I hope just in a way I can just kind of tweak it a little bit. I, I've heard many Christians make this say, I'm standing for my marriage. I get it, but I think it's wrong. Because it's like standing for a principle. I've never stood for my marriage. I stand for Susie. I stand for a living, breathing person that I committed my life to as long as my heart is beating. That's who I'm standing for. It's not some ideal. It's not some principle. It's not some philosophy. It's a person that I committed to live my life for. And that's Jesus. I stand for her. Just as Jesus, he didn't, he didn't die for a principle of philosophy. He died for you. He died for me. From me to the mission. The mission of the church. The mission of your marriage is demonstrating to the world the love of Jesus for the church. The, the mission of your marriage is living out the submission that Jesus had and continues to have. To his heavenly father. You know, <clears throat> we just got back from uh, visiting down our, our, our girls in college last week. And they told us, you know, as we were coming, they're like, there's so many people we want to introduce you to. 
And I was like, why? Why, why do you want to introduce us to all your friends? And each one of our girls at different times, I asked that question. You know what? They all said the same thing. They're like, because you and mom are hashtag relationship goals. Because I tell my friends about how you and mom love each other and care for each other. And they're like, i got to see that. I just want to see that. And there's no greater feeling than that in the world than when your kids say, Mom, Dad, I want what you have. But the reality is in our world today, so many kids are saying, I don't want anything that vaguely resembles what my parents had. Nothing at all like it. When we were in, uh, in October in Eastern Europe in Tiraspol, Transnistria, Susie did a women's conference. I did a men's conference. We did leadership training and development. We, uh, I, I preached on Sunday. I mean, we were, just, we were just like giving out, giving out, giving out, giving out, giving out, giving out. And at one point on a Sunday at the end of the message, I had Susie come up and kind of share some things that God had done just incredible in her heart. And uh, she got emotional. And I was sitting in the front row, and I just got up and, and went up there to support her. And, and later on, one of the young ladies in the church, the pastor's daughter actually, uh, the next day had a small group meeting of about 10 or 12 teenage girls and in their 20s. And she asked me, she said, through all the teaching, all the stuff, what's like the biggest point that you remember from the Williamsons being here? And you know what? Every one of them said the same thing. They said, excuse my Russian accent. It was when Pastor Susie was crying and Pastor Greg got up and he put his arm around her and he kissed her on the cheek. I've never seen something like this before between a husband and wife. An entire culture, an entire culture that's been deprived the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ laying his life down for the church. That's the mission of marriage the gospel that it really does work that's what God wants for our marriages those of us that are married those of us that one day will be don't settle for something less than that I'm going to ask I'm going to close right now and I want to do it in a little bit of a different way and so if you'll just bear with me just a little bit of instruction here's the best way that I feel like we could close this, this message today I'm going to ask if you're married and you're, and you're right now your spouse is close to you I'm just going to ask just, just hold hands with your spouse right now just take them by the hand and, and right now just in the stillness of this moment not, not, not even out loud for them to hear it because you're not really saying it for them pray for your spouse you're talking to God not to them Pray for your spouse right now. You, you, you know what the needs are. You know what the struggles are. You know what they're facing. Pray for them right now. If you're single, I'm just going to ask right now in this moment, just, just open your hands to heaven and just ask him, God, be my number one. Be, be my number one as, as, as maybe you're in the place where I'm praying for my number two, for you to bring that right person into my life. But, but God, I'm never going to put any person above you. And so I just ask you, if you're saying, open your hands to heaven and to pray that right now. If you're married, hold in hands. If you're single, hands open to heaven. Maybe you're here and you're searching. Maybe you're here today and, and all right, we're going to give it one last shot. Uh, we're going we're to see if maybe God can save our marriage. He can, but first he wants to save you. First, he wants to say, first, he said, put me first. Invite me into the middle of your life and the middle of your marriage and trust me and watch what I can do when you put me first. Let's just pray right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the picture of Jesus Christ laying his life down for the church, the gospel, because of love, in the name of love. 
Father, I pray for all the husbands right now that, that Lord, that we would really begin to reflect the sacrificial, self-denying love of Jesus Christ to our wives. Father, I, I pray right now for, for all the wives and the hearing of my voice, Lord, that, that they would reflect the church and how the church of Jesus Christ responds to Jesus and his leadership and his sacrificial self-denying love. Father, I pray for, for all those that, that in their heart you've given them the dream of marriage one day. Lord, I, I just pray that, that it'll, they'll even begin to apply these principles of change that we've learned today from your word, from Ephesians chapter 5. Father, I pray right now for every single person who has not received Christ as their Savior, that in this moment, faith would rise in their heart. Thank you, Father. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, the Bible makes it really, really clear that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So right now, with every head bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to encourage you to pray this prayer. It's all it takes with faith in our heart, inviting Jesus into our lives. Just say after me, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I receive Jesus Christ's sacrifice for me. I receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. Lead me, guide me, and direct my life. I trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Valley Christian Church located in Hopewell Junction, New York. Please visit us online at valleychristianchurch.net for more information. Thank you.